Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. I'm in a period of emotional upheaval. Let's have all the, oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Fairmount Plus. Veteran broadcaster Richard Madeley joins us this week on the How To Be 60 podcast, and he is as fabulously frank as ever. Does Judy, his wife of more than 35 years, ever find him annoying? Of course she finds me annoying. Sometimes I find her annoying. But that's, my God, I mean, show me a marriage where that isn't true. And I'm wondering how to be 60. It's scaring the shit out of me. Greetings all. Time for another look at Life Beyond the Big Six. So with me, Karen Tool-Adams and my old chum, emphasis on the old <laughs> Mackenzie. <laughs> Not that much older than you. Well, yeah, a bit. <laughs> so here we are. It's September. It's a time yep. of year that you retirees start to get a little bit nervous, isn't it? Because Why? Well, because it's getting a bit cold for the camper van. Absolutely not. You don't want to be sitting in a lay-by in the pissing rain. That's true. That's true. There's not much happening in the garden. Oh, my God. September it's... is one of the busiest months of the year in the garden. Have you no idea? Clearly coming through your garden, you have no idea. But almost... Really key. Tomatoes, there's beetroot, there's spuds to lift, oh. there's cucumbers. The matters. I mean, <laughs> so many things. You're just talking shit as usual. <laughs> it's such a busy month. Probably one of the busiest months, actually, I'd say. Back on our theme of random photographs mm. you sent me, what was the one of you on a set of step ladders looking <gasps> over somebody's wall? Oh, there's brambles as well. That's oh, great. You see, that's another thing about September. It was the, yeah, it was the main road, and it was just before the uh, the uh, railway station. Brambles are always maybe that's because everyone picks the lower ones down. The juicy ones are always further up. So I said to Stephen, "Going to take the step ladders along, just throw them in the camper, and then I can be able to reach them." And do you know what? I got another probably about four fifty grams this morning as well. Not with the step ladders, but just on my way back from the park. So you're fantastic. I'm flaming. Love it. You see, you're just finding things frozen. to fill your time. No, absolutely not. Hours. And then they'll be on my yogurt throughout the year because they're in the freezer just now for my breakfast. Oh, it's just fantastic. I love it. I love this time of year. There's cucumbers actually, yeah. What are you doing with them? Lots of relishes. In fact, actually, <laughs> a bronchia jar <laughs> of sweet cucumber pickle. Don't eat it before the 19th of the next month. Don't worry. Don't be so ungrateful. <laughs> it's really nice. You'll cucumber like it. pickle. It's like yeah. the Game of Thrones, this, isn't it? Winter is coming. Right. All there is to eat is <laughs> jars of sweet cucumber That's pickle. <laughs> People would pay for it. Well, no, don't open it just now. What? God, because then you break the seal and then you have to eat it and it's not ready to be eaten. Christ, can you not read? I don't open before the 19th of, of September. So put it over there. Oh October. September. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. No, September is a really busy month. As always, you'd have no idea what you're talking about. How's it going with Sister Christine? Oh, Christine. So this is my sister from New Zealand that's come back over to this country for six months. So, and interestingly enough, one of the things that Christine wanted to do was to get a bra fitting. Funnily enough. Oh, hey. God. 
She's outdone the two of us. Bigger than both of us? Yes. Bigger I, than bigger than you? I'm not joking. I did ask her last night. Bigger than old pendulous breasts? So, Pert, <laughs> so Christine was a 32. I said, what, what was the size of the bra that, that you're wearing? But you know that way that when they're sold, you can't even see the, oh. the make or the, oh. you know, it's like... Oh. And um, she thinks... 32 double D. I could have that. I could have a caster. <laughs> you so wouldn't, even, she, what, you wouldn't even put it in the box, you know, for the loved bras that you're finished with. 32 double G. Christ almighty. How far did they go up, do you think? My God. That is, I mean, she doesn't look. Did she fly all the way from New Zealand <laughs> just to prove that she was more pendulous than you were? That, that is a classic big sister, isn't it? I'm coming 4,000 miles to show you that I've got bigger tits than I'm you. I'm going to outdo you. Yes, absolutely. They must go on forever to the end of the alphabet. <laughs> I thought you meant her breasts. <laughs> no, I've not seen them in real life. Do you not? No. <laughs> <laughs> not really any dessert to either as I'm sure no. she has no dessert to see mine and and Stephen's now an old man oh my god so Stephen turned 66 now be careful because we've got Richard Madeley coming up and I believe I know he is the evergreen uh, Richard <laughs> actually I should say the ever evergreen bronze. that sounds like he's um, innocent uh, evergreen well he might be innocent well, uh, the ever bronze Richard maybe yeah, no. he's 67 so don't start saying cheeky things about men who are 66 oh EP that's <gasps> all I'm saying Oh, it's not like that. But it's a fact of life, isn't it? And I thought, oh my God, Stephen, you're 66. You're now, now, you know, when you go into somewhere and you think, I wonder if I can pass on that concessionary one because I'm getting my bus pass and I turned 60. But really, you're probably cheating because it's probably over. Yeah. You know, you should yeah. be, reason, you know, getting your pension. Now he is. Now he's officially a pension. Do you look at him and think, I am living with an old man? Is the silence too long? Isn't it? <laughs> it was a little bit long, I have to say. thing is, I'm not that far behind him, so I can't say too much. I'd love to say it was a pregnant pause, but that's all gone, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> we all gone. We all gone. Yes. Well, um, so we do, we do have Richard coming up, and I'm looking forward to it, because Richard is a talker, and you have had quite a few men on the podcast who are absolutely lovely, but not all men are talkers, and Richard is a talker. What, like, happy to divulge lots about himself? He, just, he, he likes he likes talking. Not all men like talking, but I, well, my impression is that Richard likes talking. We might have 45 minutes of silence, in which case I'll be disabused, because he's an, an agony uncle as well. I don't know if there's anything you'd like to ask his advice about. Uh, that'll come. Um, yeah. Well, you can just do it spontaneously. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. About that. Um, I am going to get his advice actually for one of our emailers, um, which is a bit of a serious one. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, he does his agony column for the Daily Telegraph. So, you know, talking about being old, just before we bring Richard on, I had this weird experience last week. So I was at an event in London, you know, some launch of something. So I didn't mm -hmm. really know anyone. You know, you get chatting to random people. So I got chatting to this woman who'd been very big in the art world or was very big in the art world. Mm. Really interesting. Trendy. No. Oh, interesting. Now, this is the interesting thing. Uh. She was very smart. She was very funny, very sassy, great stories. Yeah. But, uh -huh. and I don't know how to say this. Right. She presented in a very conservative fashion. You know, she, Dull. she had, no. Right. She, don't put words in my mouth. She was very, um, she had that hair, you know, women, when they cut their hair and they say, it's easy to keep, you know, it's just like short back and sides and it was grey. Now that can be a look, but it wasn't really a look mm. in this case. And then her dress was, I would say, conservative. My God, so, she's selling it well. She doesn't sound like she's no, but, she was, but she was great fun. But if you shut, you, but her was look. Was that charity? Stop it. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. 
So her look was like convener of the village garden fair. Yes. Right? Selling my pickles. Selling your pickles and buying your pickles. Exactly that. So the, <laughs> exactly yeah, that. Yeah, quite, quite. Well done. So I'm just chatting to her and she's telling me all these stories and then she starts to swear like a trooper. At you? No, just in telling her story. She embellished all her right. stories with real shit. Oh, so I told him to fuck right off. Oh he was a God. fucking idiot. Oh, my God. Stupid fucking man. He was an absolute... Bl- no, no, she wasn't. How and weird. It just discombobulated me because when I was looking at her, I was seeing an old woman. Okay. And, you know, like when you're brought up, you see an old lady and old ladies shouldn't swear. And then I was getting so confused because she was probably not that much older than me. Oh, my God. And But... I, I was just really very... Now, is that because you see yourself as a lot younger than you are? I think I probably, stop? yeah. Right. I think I'm probably fooling myself that I'm young, she's old because she's got grey hair and a bad and, dress. And in reality, there's how many years between you? Probably, probably a couple. Oh, my God. But then I think if I'm in company and I'm swearing, maybe people are thinking that about me. As an old woman. As an old woman. And you're here. Well, what are you talking about, for God's sake? I'm not on the telly. <laughs> You've got standards, certain standards. But it's just that thing about what is old and when is old. And, you know, Richard is 66 and I'm wondering. Yeah, he doesn't look it, does he? D- does he think he has passed into that age of being an older generation whereby the younger generation looks at you as old? And is there a certain kind of behaviour code that you should have when you're older? You know, do you necessarily become or should become more socially conservative? Oh my God, and dull. Yeah, well, that's what that's what I'm thinking. Japan, don't you think? Well, we will find out. Yeah, we will find out, and we'll also see what he thinks of our email of the week. Right. Yes. Here comes our email of the week. Now, because Richard is an agony uh, uncle, an agony uncle, (laughs) an agony (laughs) ankle. (laughs) There probably are those out there. Uh, I have chosen an email which is looking for a bit of advice. It's from oh. Nina, Nina Crombie. Uh, Nina says, love the pod, uh, BTW. Do you know what that By means? the way. Oh, well done, you. Uh, so produces flying anxiety when I'm on a plane. I'm 58 and I'm grateful to still be here. Mm-hmm. But with 60 looming, mm-hmm. all I can think about is being closer to dying. Expecting the worst daily. I wish I could just enjoy living a bit more. Any tips, welcome. God Thank almighty. You. Well, she doesn't want advice for you, that's <laughs> for sure. So we'll see what Richard thinks right, after this. Right. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, hi, Richard. How are you? Uh, 67, actually, not 66. <laughs> oh, I had a brief, a brief array of hope when you said that. But no, no, no. May the 13th, 1956. Yeah, it's 67. Yeah. <gasps> I hope that didn't bite that conversation, did it? Oh, of course not. I mean, we all, I mean, you've admitted it. We all reflect on it. I mean, I've noticed in the last two or three years that I'm beginning to do certain kind of mundane things. And I realize once I've done them or as I'm doing them, it's for the very last time. 
that's what happens is when you start to get properly older, you know. Like, for example, I, I had to get some, some some nails and screws to do, put a few paintings and things up around the house. We had it redecorated. And I went to the DIY shop because I'd run out. And I got a couple of packets of nails and a packet of screws. And the bloke there who knows me said, you're always buying things in tiny packets. Look, just get that huge box. It's a special offer. It's got all the nails and screws you could need, all shapes and sizes, $19.99. I said, done. And I walked out with this box and I looked at it. And there's probably a, a total of about 700 screws and nails in it. I thought, that is the last time I will ever buy a screw or a nail. I will never, ever have to do that again in my life. That is a lifetime's supply. It's not depressing, but it kind of brings you up short. I mean, you quite rightly said, and I, and I find this really not hard to believe because it's just true, but hard to say, I am a pensioner. You know, I'm at 60. I am an old, what we used to call an old age pensioner, an OAP. We don't say that anymore, but you know, in my past, that was how you describe anybody over the age of 65. Now, actually, I'm only technically a pensioner because I don't actually <laughs> claim my state pension. I'm, I've got it on hold. Uh, and Julie didn't start claiming hers until about a year ago. But yeah, I am, I am a pensioner and it does, it, it's true, but it, yes, it sounds strange. I'm gazing at you here, Richard, and you know you're there in it. We've got a fantastic suntan. You've got those blonde highlights. I know they're natural. You've got the white t-shirt. You are reminiscent of a young George Michael in his club Tropicana days. <laughs> yes, actually. How funny you should say that because I'm doing this from our dining room in our house in North London, and actually now I think about it, and I'm not breaking this up. I'm sitting in the chair that George Michael sat in when he he oh, wow. he acts. Well, he used to live in Highgate. Um, and we live in Hampstead, so we're sort of neighbours, as it were. And this was an extraordinary thing that happened to Judy and I. We've never forgotten it. We'd, 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 we'd done a This Morning Christmas edition about two weeks before Christmas, and we'd just launched our Christmas appeal for kids. And we came off air expecting maybe to have brought in maybe seven or 8,000 pounds in the very first sort of morning. And our editor was in the corridor outside the studio as we came off air, jumping up and down with excitement. And she said, you'll never, you'll never guess, we've raised over 50,000 pounds. We said, what? That, that's some mistake, surely. She said, no, no. One donation came in for 50,000. We said, a single? Who from? She said, I can't tell you. He swore me to secrecy. So I go and grabbed it by the lapels and said, who from? And she <laughs> said, it's George Michael. George Michael watches this morning. He's, he, he's a fan of the show. And he saw the appeal and he picks up the phone. He call, and I took the call. And the money's gone through. It's in the bank. He's given us 50 grand. And I said, well, well, and Judy and I looked at each other and I said, well, I want to call him and thank him. And it's amazing. And she said, all right. So they, they gave me his number. And that evening, Judy and I got home. It was about six o'clock. And uh, we were in our, in our living room. And I, with great trepidation, I mean, like, like you, Cam, I used to talking to, you know, celebs, but this is George fucking Michael. I know. <laughs> I know. I sort of dialed his number halfway through and then hang up, you know, and then dialed his number three, got a hang up, and finally, Judy says, do it, come on. I said, no, you do it. She said, fuck off, you do it. So finally, <laughs> I, finally I dialed the number, and it rang about three times, click, and there's George Michael's voice on the other end, saying, hello, George. Hello, George. It's, it's Richard. Hi, Rich. Hi, how are you doing? I said, um, fine. Look, I just wanted to thank you. So I get going, and the conversation starts to happen, and we chit-chat for two or three minutes, and I thank him. And Judy's standing behind me, sort of <laughs> pulsating with excitement, eavesdropping. And then I heard myself say, uh, "It was a th I think it was a Thursday, I heard myself say, you live in Highgate, don't you, mate? And he said, yeah, yeah. He said, I said, well, we're in Hampstead, just around the corner. He said, oh, right, we ought to get together. And I said, well, do you fancy coming for Sunday lunch this Sunday so we can say thank you properly? And Judy's behind me going, no, what are you doing there? And he said, oh, I'd love to do that. I'm free, yeah. Um, can I bring Kenny? And that was his boyfriend at the time. Uh, and I said, sure, yeah, okay. So we 
talked to her, I gave him the address, and I put the phone down, and I turned around, and for the one and only time in my marriage and my whole relationship with Judy, she was doing a handstand. She was standing on her head, with her feet in the air and her back against the sofa, in just total excitement. <laughs> Very quickly, flash forward like three days, and I, I, I do the cooking. So I'm in the kitchen. It's one o'clock, the, the, the appointed hour. I'm cooking, bang on the dot, doorbell, ding dong. And I go to the door and open it. And it honestly, it was like a beetle on your doorstep. Jesus. It was George Michael in his heyday, yeah, in his mm. pomp. He was chiseled. He looked fantastic. His hair was fantastic. He was in his shades and his leathers. And standing next to him was, was, was Kennedy, his incredibly handsome American boyfriend. And like I say, it was like a beetle there. We ended up, it ended up staying for about six or seven hours in this room where I'm talking to you. And we, bec- we became very good friends. Um, until, of course, he, he kind of got lost in drugs, um, which was horrible. Uh, he was so, so young and it was so ridiculous. And he just kind of, um, from, you know, we used to see each other quite a lot and keep in touch on the phone and go to each other's places. And then he just, with all of his friends and better friends than us, he just, like drugs do, drugs pulled him away, you know, like tugging at his arm. And he got in touch less and less. He stopped answering messages. He stopped answering voicemail. Uh, then he went through this weird period where he was getting in his car at four in the morning, you know, and driving 10 miles an hour, and crashing into happy snaps in house. And it was all awful. And then he died, you know, um, and it was it was so tragic because I remember I remember during that that first lunch, we talked a lot about his singing, you know, and he referred to his voice, his incredible voice. And this makes it sound as if he was he was conceited, but it was the opposite of conceit. He called it my gift, kept talking about my gift. And what he meant was it's nothing really to do with me. It's been given to me. Uh, it's something which I was blessed with, and, and therefore I I use. But he he did he did know that he had an incredible voice. Um, I remember telling him that my my favourite performance I've ever seen or heard him do was um, somebody to love at the Queen Memorial concert. Yeah, you're not. Oh yeah. my God! Absolutely. Remember that he came out and just blew Wembley away, didn't he? I mean, it was incredible. Um, and he just said, "My gift, my gift." In a funny kind of way, and maybe I'm sliding this in, and I'm going back to to Nina's email that came in. Oh yeah, and I think it does fit here because there's George Michael that we're all remembering so fondly that that he was somebody that was held in such great affection, his talent was held uh, in such high regard, and he died far, far too young. <laughs> and at our age, we're now thinking about, oh god, it's not that far away. Um, <laughs> and Nina here saying, "I'm 58." And with 60 looming, all I can think about is being closer to dying, expecting the worst daily. I wish I could just enjoy living a bit more. Often what mm. people will say is, well, be grateful you've got this far because you'll get people like George <laughs> Michael who, for mm. whatever reason, his life's cut short. But it can grip you, that kind of morbidity. I know you're the eternal optimist, Richard, but do you ever think about it? Um, I Yes, but I think you have to think your way through it. Otherwise, you're wasting your days. I mean, if if Nina's listening to this, I I, w- I would counsel her this. I would say, look, if she had a health issue, she presumably would have mentioned it in in her email to you. So I'm assuming that you're fundamentally healthy and you're only 58. Um, and the average age of um, a woman in this country now is well into the 80s. It's it's about 83, 84. I think men, it's just under 80, 79.6 or something like that. So. Just going on the average, and we, of course, we never know what's going to happen, but just going on the average, you've still got 68, 78, you've still got maybe a quarter of a century of life ahead of you. So I would say to 
there's nothing wrong and nothing foolish in being optimistic um, and assuming that you may well live for another quarter of a century or longer. You might live to your mid-90s. Think of what you've done in the last 20, 25 years. Think, look back 20, 25 years and think, if I died 25 years ago, I would never have done all of those things. And look ahead now and think of the potential that you've got. You're on a plane going somewhere, for Christ's sake. Think of the potential for pleasure and achievement and fulfillment. You know, it ain't over till it's over. And as far as you know, you know we're near it being over. So enjoy the day. I read something that you had said, Richard, that you are a very positive person. And I mean, in terms of Judy, perhaps she's someone who maybe takes a less rosy view of life. What was it that that she, you you buoy her up and she keeps you grounded? Yeah, that's fair enough. I, I think that's true. That's that, I would say that is the that's one of the kind of the balancing points of our of our marriage and our relationship, and, and it always has been. And yes, she has a tendency to. To balloon us, uh, she's. I mean, she's. She's written and spoken about this openly, so I'm, I'm not. I'm not giving anything away. She. She had quite bad uh, postnatal depression, uh, which kind of leaves a scar when you've when you've gone through severe depression. It, it leaves you anxious that maybe it might come back, it might strike again. So she's. She is definitely yes. Uh, she tends to pessimism, and I tend to optimism. It's. It's the classic cliche: the glass half full and half empty. Um, I will. A classic example is. For us, we will look at the same weather forecast. We, we say if we're going for a few days down to Cornwall, we'll look at the same long-range weather forecast. And I will turn and say, looks pretty good, doesn't it? And she'll look at me as if I've, I'm speaking in Greek. And she'll say, what are you talking about? It's going to be raining most of the time. And I'm saying, no, that's not what it said. She says, yes, it is. You know, we have completely diverging interpretations of um, of, of uh, outcomes, you know? She, she, she tends to be much more uh, negative than I am. But then... But then, she, to, to her credit, she uh, she adjusts to the reality and then celebrates it. I was going to say, does she ever find you really annoying for being? Of course, she positive? does. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's my job as husband to be annoying, to be to be the, the you know the stone in the sea, the irritant. Of course, she finds me annoying, and sometimes I find her annoying. My God, I mean, point, show me a marriage where that isn't true. I mean, and that's the hallmark of of you, Richard and Judy. I mean, obviously, we see your television relationship, or we have, which is usually very different from what's behind. But you've always had a reputation for being open. What was unusual about you, Richard, and you, you may not agree with this at that time? Well, daytime television was relatively new, but for you as a guy in particular to be so open about how you were feeling. And it wasn't just about, you know, whether or not you and Judy had a tip. The, the subject matter that you were discussing, whether it was testicular cancer or, yeah, yeah. you know, women's problems, dare I say it was called time. It was quite unusual for a bloke to be involved in these conversations and to appear to be comfortable to be involved in these conversations. You know what I mean? Most men on telly at that time was kind of the man and they would tell mm -hmm. people important news. They wouldn't be talking about domestic stuff, but you did. I've always been open, you know, and I've always been impatient and uh, irritated by withholders. I don't like people who withhold. I, that doesn't mean you have to overshare, and I hope I never did that, although I'm sure some people think I did. But I, I've always been, um, if you like, as a non-judgmental person, I've been quite judgmental of people who withhold uh, to maintain some degree of control or power. I just think, oh, fuck off. Tell it how it is. You know, um, if, if if you have these feelings, if you if, if you have this concern about, you mentioned testicular cancer, well, talk about it. Why not? You know, um, withholding it just because you're on some kind of controlled stroke 
power trip as a TV presenter. Um, it's pathetic, really. And that also chimes in with my view of, you know, I, I, I started in television in 1978 as a, as a TV reporter at Border Television. And I'm not quite sure why, but quite quickly, um, I formed a kind of, uh, again, I say I'm non-judgmental, but it doesn't sound it here, a sort of contempt for people on television who think that it makes them in any shape, way, or form special. Because it doesn't. I mean, just because you can read the autocue, you know, or learn a short piece of camera out in the field, and just because people after a while, whether you, because you appear in their, in their homes on regional television every night, or most nights, or in their homes in the mornings network-wise on, on a show like This Morning or Richard and Judy, why would you think that would make you any better than anyone else? But we, we all know them. You know them, Kay. Uh, there are a lot of people in television, on camera, on screen, who, it, well, coin a phrase, it goes to their heads. And although they would never articulate it, you can see that they think that because, you know, they have access to people's living rooms through the TV screen, which, by the way, is a, is, is a dying world. It's all it's all podcasts and online now. We know that. Make, makes them somehow better. And I just think that makes them actually look ridiculous. I, I always remember when I joined Granada, uh, Judy was was presenting Granada reports, and I was the third spoke in the wheel because the other guy there was, and it was an unusual lineup of three co-presenters. Um, was uh, Tony Wilson, Anthony H. Wilson. I remember who, many people will, will remember he was he was a Granada TV presenter. He was he had two lives. He had his work as as the Granada TV presenter. He also was Mister Manchester. He he ran the Hacienda nightclub. That was his nightclub, which was the nightclub in Manchester. And at that stage, at that point in Manchester, in Tony's life, this is 1982, almost wherever you looked on any kind of blank surface or wall, there would be the same graffiti, hundreds of these bits of graffiti that all said the same thing in the same spray font, silver font, about six feet high. Tony Wilson is a wanker. Wherever you looked, that, that, was, that was the abuse. Tony Wilson is a wanker. And you could see a couple of these actually from the window of the newsroom. And on this particular morning, the, somebody, maybe the producer, made a crack about it as the conversation unfolded. And Tony came back with a zinger. I can't remember what it was, but it showed that he didn't care. Uh, and I was intrigued by this. And I remember we were at the water cooler, literally, about half an hour later. And he was saying to me, how are you getting on? Are you fitting in? Are you enjoying it? And blah, blah, blah. And I said, can I ask you something? He said, yeah, what? What do you want to ask? I said, um, don't you mind that? And I pointed out of the window. You could, there you could see it. Tony Wilson is a wanker. He said, what should I fucking mind? Uh, would you mind? And I said, well, yeah, if I went back to my hometown, you know, because he was obviously a man. If I went back to Romford in Essex and everywhere I looked at Richard Bailey's a wanker, oh, yeah, I'd be a bit pissed off. Aren't you pissed off? He said, no. I said, why not? He said, because it's fucking true. And then he looked at me and he said, can I ask you something? I said, what? He said, do you like being on telly? I said, what do you mean? He said, oh, fuck off. You know what I mean? Do you like, do you enjoy it? Do you like being on the telly? Do you like being that bloke on the telly? Do you like it? I said, well, yeah, yeah, I do. He said, so do I, Rich. He said, that's that makes us wankers. He said, that that by definition makes us wankers, right? He said, so you know what that is? And he pointed at the graffiti again. He said, you know what that is? He said, it's two things. He said, it's the fucking truth, right? He said, and it's free speech, and you need to get over it. And he was absolutely right. Can I ask, Richard, what what is the worst thing that anyone's ever said to you? And look, I'm not I'm not trying to be sort of uh, super cool or brave about this, but but the worse the abuse is, the funnier I find it. To be honest, um, you, okay, the worst thing, uh, if you if, if you see it in that context, I was uh, we, we we spent a lot of time living down in Cornwall, in a house uh, near the cliffs in, in in South Cornwall, and most times that we're down there, I walk 
to the local fishing village. It's about a mile and a half across the coast. It's a beautiful walk. Rain, pale or shine. It's lovely. And this particular June day, it's pre-summer holiday time, school holiday, so the, the footpath was pretty much empty. And I was walking along it on a, cl- on a cloudless day, with sea to my left, uh, the, the cliffs and the scrub to my right. And it was just heaven. And this guy came around the corner towards me, walking towards me about 50 feet away. And once you've been on telly for a while and you get used to being recognised, um, you can spot immediately if somebody likes you or not, and you can spot if they hate you. And I could just tell from this guy's expression, just through experience, that he loathed me. You know, oh. it was that twat off the telly. And he was coming towards me, and I'm coming on this narrow path and the steep cliff and, you know, big drop to the sea on one side. And I, th- and I was quite tickled by this. And I thought, well, I wonder, he said, what am I going to say? And he was like, laser bitch. <laughs> Focused on me. He was a big bloke. He was about probably about mid fifties, quite quite big, about six three, six four. And as he got level, he drew breath, and I thought, here it comes. And I got in first, all innocent, and I said, "Beautiful day, isn't it? Aren't we lucky?" And he looked at me, and he couldn't think of what to say, and he just sort of went. He growled. He sort of went like a dog. He went, and he walked. Now that isn't the worst thing. Don't worry. There's a point to the story. And he walked on. I thought, okay, fine. He, he missed his moment. So I carried on to the village and I got my pasties and bread and newspapers and stuff. And I'm walking back about 50 minutes later, same spot on the path. He's coming back as well. We're going to pass again, going in the opposite direction. And this time, as he got close to me, I could see that he'd thought, he'd, <laughs> he wanted to say, and he probably would have lied to his wife and said that he'd said it. But now he actually was going to get the chance here. I knew he was going to do this. So I slowed down. And again, all innocent, I said to him, um, we meet again. Uh, and still, you know, still the sun shines. Isn't it great? And he came right into my space, finger jabbing at my chest. And he said, and he was from Birmingham, apologies for a shit Birmingham accent to anyone in the Midlands. But anyway, this is what he said. He said, I just want you all to know that everything you've ever done, everything you've ever said, everything you've ever said or ever will say, I loathe and fucking despise you, C dot, 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 dot. And, and then beamed with pleasure. And I'm sorry, I just burst out laughing. Because I thought, because it was just ridiculous, and it, but it was funny. His passion was funny, and he and he sort of half walked on and turned around. And I said, "No, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's just that you've just given me a great story. Um, the, thank you, thank you, thank you. It's great. No, it's fine, it's fine." And he disappeared. I never saw him again. So I suppose that's that's the worst thing, right in my face. I couldn't go. Honestly, I couldn't go. Fuck. Um, I mean, I on I, I do Good Morning Britain a lot now, um, and I've discovered that I only have to cough or sneeze in the wrong direction uh, to get extraordinary abuse on, on Twitter. I mean, really amazing stuff. But this is what's so fascinating listening to you talk, Richard, because everything that you have said, I mean, you you basically have said to us, yeah, I'm, I'm a TV wanker. We're all kind of TV wankers. I don't take myself seriously. You're very self-aware. Whereas, as you say, particularly on GMB now, and even a little bit, you know, when you were part of Richard and Judy, I don't know whether you confuse people, but the Alan Partridge reference comes up a lot. People want to cast you as someone who is very unself-aware and, you know, keeps stumbling into sort of potholes and a bit of Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is at odds with everything that you've just said. And I wonder why people want to do that. Does that not piss you off? I mean, okay, someone might come up and say you're a fucking wanker in your face and you just laugh. But to be misrepresented like that, I would find that. Well, okay. I, I, again, you have to analyze these things and, and be, be scrupulously realistic about them. If it affected the way I do the job, 
Uh, if it threw me off balance, it would be a problem. It would matter. If it had ever affected a contract I was being offered, uh, a, a job you know that, that I was being offered, um, an approach like from the Telegraph to be their agony uncle, we do a weekly column in the Express, GMB very kindly invited me just to be a regular host. If it mattered, then those things wouldn't have happened. I would be, I would be genuine. It would, in other words, it would be justified um, in some way, shape, or form. It, it would be real, uh, but it's not. It's just abuse. I honestly don't care. I, I mean, I'm not. I, I promise you, I'm not just trying to sort of fend it off. I genuinely don't care because it's not real. And also, we all know this: the abuse that, that we all get, everybody gets uh, online, partic- particularly on on Twitter. It comes from a tiny minority of people. I don't. I mean, I mentioned the bloke on the cliff, but that is really exceptional. I don't get that kind of stuff out out there at all. I, I, I people are very friendly. They often come up and talk about something which is happened on GMB that morning or something, or a letter I've, I've responded to in, in the agony column, which people seem to like quite a lot. Um, and we have intelligent, sensible conversations about it. And, and a lot of people are very nice to me when I'm out and, you know, complimentary. The the very opposite of what you would expect if you thought that Twitter was real, and it's not. And the numbers of people who who go on Twitter to, to abuse people in the public eye are, relatively speaking, fractional. They're tiny. And you don't see it in the real world. You have to remember that and be cognizant of that because otherwise, I mean, I, I know there are some people who, you know, being bad mouth on Twitter, it really fucks them up and it, mm-hmm. and it shouldn't. So all of that stuff, it sounds like you've got all of that in perspective in terms of your home life and you're now a granddad and all that kind of stuff. Have you got clear blue water between all of the noise out there and your real life, presumably at home? Well, up to a point, Lord Copper. I mean, okay, we talked about the negatives of social media and the way that that's changed things for people on, on telly. But I love working on telly. I mean, I love, I, I mean, I don't want clear blue water. I'm quite happy having a, I don't keep my, my, my career and family life incredibly separated. And I never have. It's, it's part of me. You know, I like being connected to the audience and I, and I, I love doing GMB. It's a, it's, it's a kind of, um, a small. I mean, I've had my career arc. That's behind me. Um, but but doing GMB is a kind of um, final flourish almost, which I enjoy. And so, no, I don't. I don't see clear blue water between doing that and 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 family life at all. Does it bother you that you've used the words your career arc is behind you? Does that bother you? Oh no, I had a I had a lovely career. I mean, I really enjoyed myself. You know, I, I started up in a local. I mean, I, I was started in journalism over fifty years ago. I started in local papers when I was fifteen. I think I learned more. In the three years, I was indentured to the Brentwood Argus and East London Advertiser, they were the two big papers in our newspaper group. I think I learned more in those first three years than I learned since. Uh, and then I moved into local radio and had a ball there. And then I moved into local television, border television, Yorkshire television, and then across to Granada, met Judy, got the this morning gig, did, did 14 years of that. Then we got the Channel 4 gig and we did eight years of that. It was brilliant. It was great. You You can't have that kind of sustained... Uh, daily, you know, um, enjoyment and, and success in your career forever. It's bound to arc. Um, and at my age, of course it's arc, but it doesn't mean it's over. Um, so I see, I see myself now as a kind of, um, a job in freelance, you know, a couple of newspaper columns, sitting in occasionally on, on things like Radio 2. I used to sit in quite a lot for Michael Ball, doing a two weeks out of four mostly on, uh, on Good Morning Britain and other things that come along, the occasional series and, 
documentary series and stuff. And it's great. But yeah, the 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 big you you know the big arc was me and Judy doing this morning launching that show, which is still going today. You know. Hmm. God, you're you're. You can talk. Have you ever been at a loss for words? And you know what? You can edit. <laughs> um, Has anything ever left you speechless or at a loss for words? Well, okay. I, 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 no, it's, it's a good question, but I can't. Nothing immediately springs to mind. Um, there's usually something to say. About Birth of a grandchild? Uh, no, I probably babbled about that as well. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we've got we've got uh, four grandchildren and one very very imminent on the way, so we'll have five quite soon, and that's wonderful. I mean, I'm sure your previous guests here who, who find themselves into grandparenting, um, it's it's like having an extra room built onto your onto your your house of life. That's a bit florid, but you know, it's like an extension that suddenly is there and you can go into it. And it's new and it's big and it's it's got its own kind of space. It's it's amazing being a grandparent. I, I absolutely love it. It's, it's, How involved um, are you? Well, quite involved. I mean, Chloe and James, James Haskell, her husband, they were they live just around the corner from us now, and the house that they bought needed renovation, so they came and lived with us, starting about three months before Bobo, the baby Bodhi, was uh, was born. So we saw Chloe daily um, in her final trimester, um, and then she had the baby and came immediately home here, and she was here with the baby, the newborn, for the next two or three three months before they were able to move. So we felt very involved. In, in a you know in a physical I mean most mostly as a grandparent you're sort of at a distance you know I mean I've got two granddaughters but they live in Manchester and now they live in Boston Massachusetts with with, uh, with my stepson Tom um, I've got a grandson Kit but he's on the other side of London but you know Bobo was here in the house with us uh, she recognised I mean she's only one but she she knows this house like the back of the hand and she knows us you know recognises us immediately because we were there we we imprinted on her you know in those first three months so that's a spe- that's a special relationship because of that so very involved yeah we 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 see him. Couple of times a week, at least. I don't, I don't know whether this is. I'm coming from my own experience, my own dad. But when a man like you have been the centre of the house, you know, the big guy, and then you get a bit older, mm-hmm. your daughter gets married, marries a big guy like James Haskell, who's mm-hmm. very much sort of alpha male um, in a positive fashion, and you become older man. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm I'm having a bit of an animalistic. Uh, That's all right. Here. Yeah. How does that feel? It feels like the natural order of things. It feels completely normal. I'm not in a competition with uh, with James, for example. We're good mates. We're, prob- we're probably going to be making, hopefully, we're going to be making some kind of series together because we ha- we have a very good relationship, James and I. We 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 um we 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 we, we josh quite a lot together. We take the piss out of each other. Um, and a couple of production companies are pitching ideas for us to uh, to do something together. We're not quite sure why. We've, we'll let them work out the details. But basically, we go on some kind of journey together um, and kind of argue, tease, and and get on on, on, on the way. I, I'm, I'm very fond of James. But you say, I've never felt, you said being the alpha male at the centre of the house, I never felt that. Judy did exactly the same job as I did. When I met her, she was doing exactly what I was being paid to do, which was present Granada reports, go out on the road and do reports, do interviews and stuff. And then we did this morning together, very much as a team, as you know. I mean, you know, very much 50-50. And at home, it's always been exactly the same, 50-50. So I've never never felt like the alpha male in that. I've just felt like a part of a team, basically, a team of two. And actually, just going back to work, that's true of my working career as well. I've, one of the one of the things I really enjoy about GMB, um, Good Morning Britain, 
is that I'm part of a team. And I think, and I and I felt that all my working life, I've always loved being in a newsroom with a bunch of other people, kicking ideas around, helping each other out with stories, you know, um, going out with a film crew, three or four guys or girls, making news reports, rushing back, going into the edit suite, working with an editor, going to the studio, working with everybody in the studio to voice the report, maybe do a piece of the camera, all part of a team. And I think that's because I had such an awful uh, time at school, in particular my first grammar school, um, where I, I it was in the East End of London, and I was a Romford boy, an Essex boy, which is not the East End, which a lot of people think it is. It's not. Um, for some reason, I, I was sent there from the age of 11, and I was very much the outsider. I didn't speak the way that the East End boys spoke. I spoke with an Essex accent. I spoke like that. But that, but that is not. And I'm not putting it on. That's that's my other voice. You know what I mean? Um, I could, uh, you know, so I've been talk in my Romford voice, whereas at home, because my dad was a public school educated guy, he expected me to talk like this. But I had I had two languages, a bit like somebody with a French mother and an English father. They can they're bilingual. So I spoke Essex when I was at school, uh, and I, I spoke kind of like this when I was at home. But at Cooper's Company School, which was then in the Mile End Road uh, in Bow, um, there was nothing like the East End accent, and I stood out, and I got really really badly bullied, um, and that went on for three years. And then I had a brief and much better experience at a, at a comprehensive. Then we moved from moved to, to, to Brentford and Essex. And then I left and joined the paper. And joining the paper at 16 was like coming home uh, because that sense of being an outsider just went. I was part of a team um, and uh, and encouraged to be part of a, of a team, you know. Uh, and, I've, and I've always loved that. And I've always thought that it's probably a kind of a compensation for, uh, for an, an unhappy three years of school. Well, how unhappy? Well, it's not it's not nice to feel that you're you are an outsider. It's physically unpleasant to be punched in the face, you know, on, on a regular basis. Um, I was in the school rugby team, and there were a couple of you know bullies who would uh, thoroughly enjoy in the scrum, running around and you know, kicking my legs and all the rest of it, being persecuted, if you like. Um, like a lot of people who are bullied, you deal with it. You deal with it. You you're optimistic. You hope the next day won't be as bad, and you go through period periods where it isn't too bad. But I mean, I've written and spoken about this this before. Um, but there were times when it was um, very wearing, to be honest with you, um, because you can't not go to school, uh, and I just had to go and sort of grin and bear it. And I didn't really tell my parents about it because, like a lot of people who were bullied, uh, I felt embarrassed and ashamed about it. You do, you know, it's a, that's a very common reaction to being bullied. You feel somehow must be something you've done. Uh, that you somehow, you know, you, you sort of deserved it. You asked for it, um, which is nonsense. Um, uh, but you just, I, I just dealt with it, and um, you know, it, it lasted three, three years on and off over those three years, uh, and then it ended. Um, and it, it taught me a lot about resilience, you know, uh, and about yes, optimism, S- accepting that sometimes life's going to be pretty shitty, and that's just how it is. You know, it's a game of cards. Sometimes you get a shit hand. And you just have to play it and hope you can stay in the game. And that's that's what happened there. But it, I mean, I wasn't knifed, you know. Um, I didn't want to, you know, lighter fluid poured over my head and you know, ignited. It was just, it was just very oppressive. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when you say that. I mean, we've been speaking for for a while now, and it's been great. Thank you. But isn't it funny when you come to a certain part in a conversation? And lots of it suddenly makes sense. <laughs> just when you said that at the end, a lot of our conversation has suddenly fallen into really? place. Really? That's interesting. Which, which is very interesting, yeah. Mm. Listen, we, we have taken so much of your time. We do a quick, a thing called Big Six O Bingo. So uh, Karen is just looking for two numbers from you between one and 60, and then you'll have a random question attached. Oh, so fire away, Richard. Oh, okay. okay. So I've got to pick a number between one and yep. six. 
All right, then. Uh, one and sixty. Uh, well, okay. My favourite age, let's say, forty. Key. Best childhood memory. Getting our one and only dog, uh, Prince, who was uh, a collie, looked exactly like Lassie, absolutely beautiful, and was sort of my dog. Uh, untrainable, which is why after two years my parents got rid of him, sold him, because he was untrainable. Uh, he wouldn't walk to heel. You let him off the leash in the park, he'd run away. You wouldn't see him for hours. Uh, sometimes strangers would ring him back because we obviously had a collar around his neck. Uh, wouldn't sit, wouldn't shake paws. I mean, <laughs> wouldn't go in the basket. Didn't do anything. It was un- We took him to training classes, but he was such a laugh. I, I'm sure if, if a dog can laugh, I'm sure that Prince used to laugh a lot. You know, his, his jaws would think funny things would happen. His jaws would part slightly and he'd pant and he just knew he was laughing. Uh, and we had him actually when I was at that awful school. Um, and, uh, he was, he was a great comfort to come home to. So, but the day that we got him as a, as a, I think he was about a five month old puppy was glorious, glorious. I've never forgotten it. How old were you then, Richard? I would have been 11. What about the day you got rid of him? Um, I remember my sister and I, she's four years older than me, stood in stood in the front door as, as the family who'd bought him over the phone came to collect him. And uh, they put, a, they put a, a, a leash on him and they walked him down the path and got into the back of the car and the couple got into the front of the car. And, you know, we really thought the prince was going to look around and kind of almost nod goodbye. We were going, bye, prince, bye. He just looked straight ahead and they drove <laughs> off. That was that. It, it wasn't a great day, but uh, again, you know, such is life. Oh, hard, hard. Okay, Richard, give us another number. Okay. Uh, all right, the year I was born, 56. Okay. Ooh, now, <laughs> if you were whistled at, would you feel flattered or pissed off? I think I'd feel puzzled, to be honest, at my age. Um, I certainly wouldn't be pissed off, no. Um, I don't think any bloke would be pissed off. And it's totally different for women. It's a completely different kind of mind game going on there. I'm like, I completely get that. But uh, but no, if, if I was a wish, I, I can't imagine circumstances where that would happen. Um, so I, I, would, I would be astonished, but I wouldn't. No, I wouldn't be pissed off. I'd be intrigued. If you're walking along with either Judy or your daughter and they were whistled, what would you do? That's a really good question. Uh, I take my cue from them, I guess. They're both very robust, you know. Um, they both, they uh, both Chloe and Judy, absolutely know how to take care of themselves. So it would depend very much on the exact circumstances and where the whistle came from and all, all of that. But I certainly wouldn't be worried for them. They'd know exactly how to handle it. Yeah. Oh, Richard, listen, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. I really do. That that was... Yeah, it's nice to meet you. A great chat. I've loved talking to you. Great questions as well. I enjoyed it. It was fun. Thank you. Next week, stand-up Joe Caulfield joins us on the How To Be 60 podcast, talking about nearly 30 years on the comedy circuit and the loss of her sister, aged just 57. <laughs>